Welcome to The Big Conversation from Freshfields, where we take a step back to understand the world better and pinpoint how to navigate the forces shaping business, politics and society. The backdrop to the launch of this podcast is more challenging than ever before for business. The rise of populism and fragmenting multilateral institutions leading to rapid changes in the regulatory landscape, plus the long tail of COVID-19 and ever-increasing demands on companies' ESG performance. It's tough and it's messy out there. So we launched The Big Conversation, live events and a podcast to bring together our experts and leading thinkers from business, politics and academia to help make sense of this environment for corporations. Our aim is to convene opinions from across the spectrum and to spark thought-provoking debate, offering fresh perspectives and practical guidance that gives our clients a competitive advantage. I'm Tim Wilkins, one of your co-hosts today. I'm Freshfield's global partner for client sustainability and based here in New York. I'm here today with Oliver Dudak Van Heel, who works closely with me to shape Freshfield's ESG advisory services and also the firm's sustainability strategy. So I'm Oliver Dudak Van Heel, and I'm head of client sustainability and environment at Freshfield's. Today, we're joined by two guests who are going to help us understand the impact on business of the drive towards net zero and the outcomes of the recent COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. I'm Helen Clarkson. I'm Chief Exec at the Climate Group, an international non-profit organisation, so we're mission-driven. Our mission is to drive climate action fast. My name is Tarek Fancy. I was formerly the Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing at BlackRock. Uh, I'm also the founder of the Rumi Initiative, which is a digital education non-profit. Tarek's written extensively about sustainable investing and, in particular, about what's needed to drive faster progress on climate goals. Tariq, you've expressed a lot of skepticism around ESG data. Can you expand a little bit on where those failings are? Well, one of the challenges is that it's very difficult to measure these things. I think the E in ESG is a little bit easier in the sense that you could generally quantify these things. And uh, there is a clear role for governments to play to use their regulatory powers and, you know, taxes and fines and other things to make sure that areas of the natural environment that are not ascribed to value um, and therefore that are sort of, you know, public goods that are sort of exploited are, are less exploited. Uh, I think the S is uh, much harder, right? There, it, it, you know, inequality is more quantitative, but I think there's a lot of difficult things to measure within that around corporate culture and gender and so on that are, are, are trickier. But ultimately, you know, the data is getting better the standards are getting better. I mean, they're not where they need to be, right? But they're useful in the sense that you can't really manage something unless you can measure it first. The challenge is how it actually gets managed. And that's where I, I'm very worried because, you know, ultimately, if you have a situation where you can measure irresponsible business activities, you always still need not just the visibility and transparency around what's been done, but also some mechanism to actually you know, penalize bad behavior and change incentives, right? And, and that's the piece that's missing because most of the ESG conversation today is a set of tools and data and standards that, again, are imperfect, but they're well-intended and they're useful in some form, but they're being combined 
with saintly narratives around effectively ESG actually solving our problems just through measurement and transparency. My concern is that ESG done poorly is not even not helpful. It's actually a dangerous placebo that lulls the public and policymakers into believing that we don't need government action. You know, in New York City, people disclose calorie counts. I'm not sure that that's changed much behavior besides the fact that I still buy a donut and then I just feel a bit bad about it. Sounds to me that you're saying even with the kind of perfect information in this particular structure, we will never achieve uh, the goals that you're uh, espousing. I, I think, you know, the, the answer is actually a lot simpler than we make it, right? The answer is that in society, if we want less capital flowing to activities that we still need today, but we definitely need to wean ourselves off of like fossil fuels, the core component is some sort of carbon tax or something that internalizes the economic externality that continues to persist. You know, as long as the incentives are not aligned, there that's a role for government to play. And the sense that I've gotten across industries is that generally governments have sort of been cowed into sort of believing that markets can operate on their own without significant regulation, which I think is a mistake. I did banking in, in the dot-com bubble, caught, caught the end, and then I became a distressed investor and we raised money for a 10-year fund just ahead of the financial crisis of 2007. You know, you could sort of see that there were issues brewing. And I'd say two things out of the distress experience that were interesting to me was that, number one, it became very clear to me that um, you need a systemic solution because if people just decide to stop lending to fossil fuel players on a one-by-one -one basis, you end up in a situation where people believe that you can play whack-a-mole against the markets, right? Just one-by-one -one sort of hitting them. And again, being a distressed investor, it's a joke for me because we would sit and wait for opportunities like that. We would raise money knowing that at some point people will flee. And our view is as long as it's legal and it makes money, you know, someone's going to invest in it. I worry significantly that people are missing out the fact that there are generations, younger generations are losing faith in capitalism entirely. And it's easy to ignore things like that, just like people ignored sort of the the social trends that led to Trump's election or disaffection in the US, it could have been frankly Sanders or Trump in 2016 or Brexit and to just sort of take, take them in a relaxed way. But I mean, if you look at sort of Greta Thunberg's generation and the extent to which they've become frankly the most cynical young people I've ever seen. Uh, and, and with a good, good reason, I think, I think it's easy to underestimate the fact that, you know, we're, we need to make changes a lot faster, both for the planet and for political stability. I mean, just picking up on, on that, because you, you've, you've talked about the need for systemic solutions, right? And, but I, I get the impression that, that you're equating that with government action, when, of course, governments are, to a large extent, influenced by private interests. They're uh, certainly influenced by electoral cycles, which may not be fully aligned with the kind of changes that we are talking about. So when you talk about systemic solution, how do those factors fit in? It's a good point, because truth is like you know you know that it's cheaper to market yourself as being sustainable in the short term than it is to actually make the long-term investments around being green that might take 20 20 years so your question is very apt which is that well what about politicians they have the exact same short-term cycle where they're focused on the next election and um i think that's a very that's a very good question i'm not convinced that politicians are going to go and make the changes at a systemic level that we need unless the public is made to understand that this is going to be costly, it's going to be expensive, we have to do them. That can't possibly happen if business leaders are standing on stages saying, don't worry, we've got this, which clearly they don't. And they're saying, hey, buy this green ETF or this green 
you know, mutual fund or public product. So you're holding off tax and regulation on one hand, you're with the other hand selling a bunch of what I would call wheatgrass to a cancer patient, right? And the evidence is emerging that that wheatgrass is actually delaying the patient from undergoing chemo, helping society kick the can down the road by you know, building a convenient fantasy to, to address inconvenient truths. So that being the case, what would you say is then the optimum relationship between governments and markets to enable the kind of change that, that is needed? Is it purely kind of hard law or are there other mechanisms that are equally likely to be successful? I mean, for instance, carbon markets. I think it's a combination of things, right? So one thing I would say is that some of my comments have been oddly misinterpreted by folks by, you know, they say, well, the, what about the markets? The markets have to play a role and the private sector has, of course, the markets. I mean, it's a bit odd for me because I'm a former investment banker and I have an MBA. And so I almost sort of, I'm capitalist and it, it's it's uh, automatically soon in my head that of course markets have the critical role to play. The question when you look at the relationship between the private sector and government is how, how that comes about. If the private sector can do the heavy lifting, it's not gonna happen magically. Right, so the government has a pl role to play to catalyze it, but it's more about using their powers to shift the incentives. And a simple way of thinking about it that I think is sort of illustrative is to look at how we addressed a faster moving systemic curve that science told us to flatten, which was COVID-19. And so to flatten the curve, governments use their special powers to close bars, restaurants, schools, make masks mandatory indoors, restrict travel. So those are regulatory powers that have to close and adjust behavior. Right. And I think um, with the climate crisis, it would be a price on carbon. The second thing that we did with with COVID-19 was to find an escape plan. Right. So to aggressively invest in vaccine production. The goal was that by doing uh, various pre-orders, you have all of these players that have an incentive to to continue innovating and not sort of drop out if they think they're not going to win. And so you you galvanize many parts of the private sector to all, you know, many horses racing to find a solution. And that's the way we, you know, we get to solution as fast as possible. I know that we uh, have a lot of clients that speak with us about, well, are there ways to collaborate? Because having one uh, investor determine a, a particular strategy may not be enough to really affect the type of systemic changes that we're looking for. Would that be another way that governments, in terms of permitting more of that type of collaboration um, among the big asset holders, more, I would think, in a stewardship way of affecting policy that can actually um, change the whole systemic issue around the portfolio? I think it's challenged. And the reason I think it's challenged is because, again, they're subject to fiduciary duties and focusing on dollar value over social values. And right. So I, I think of like I, I had to help advise on certain proxy votes in the ESG area. And there'd be examples like, let's say, a coffee company where there'd be a proposal that says, you know, why doesn't the company spend what could be a few billion dollars to change the packaging materials to something that's recyclable, right, versus a single use approach. Clearly, it's good for the world if they do that because they're going to reduce the amount of waste. So that's that's clear. The problem is, as a fiduciary, you couldn't really vote in favor of that unless you had some logical reason to believe that the externality would be internalized on some timeline that mattered, right? So, you know, again, if I could say, listen, if you don't do this, the government's going to regulate and fine you, then, then there's, a, there's a good reason to do it. Or, you know, your customers are going to stop you know, visiting or it's going to be a scandal or whatever. But ultimately, if none of those things happen. Thank you so much, Derek. That was wonderful. 
So, Oliver, what do you think about the points that Tarek is making? I thought, I mean, it was it was very insightful. And it's particularly interesting to see this coming from, you know, an insider who's worked in the industry and who clearly, it's, he's gone through a number of stages of, of thinking. Uh, you know, it seemed like early on in his career, he wasn't necessarily driven by sustainability consideration and then kind of saw what was going on in the world and, and, and that moved him into sustainable investing and then realizing actually maybe even that isn't enough. One of the big takeaways for me will be the important role of lawyers in all of this. There's no doubt to me that this is what's coming next. There's been enough uh, as Tarek is saying, a lot of discussions and sort of goodwill that's been uh, pronounced, but it is then going to shift into some more hard law by which business will be operating in a new framework going forward. And so I think uh, understanding what those regulations are that are going to be coming uh, to the financial sector, um, understanding what latitude they will be able to operate in is going to be a very new world um, for their normal operations. Um, and. I think that we are going to see the role of lawyers, policymakers becoming a, a lot stronger in terms of achieving the goals. So RE100, um, so for listeners who don't know, commitment to 100% renewable electricity um, by companies, and um, it has now over 300 corporate members. That was Helen Clarkson from The Climate Group. The Climate Group has three campaigns which are trying to drive businesses towards sustainability, one of which is RE100. Essentially, what we're trying to do is build a market signal into global energy markets that says all these companies are out there, they're committed to this. And then you can go to the supply side and policymakers and say, why aren't you allowing them to hit their goals quickly enough? And it's interesting, we've read your writings where you are looking at posts 2008 and the whole crash and, you know, your severe disappointment with the response from business. How is it that business is changing since it's 2008, rather poor response? The big switch I've seen is a sense of business waiting to be told what to do by governments. Government is there to sort this out. We will wait and we'll do what government tells us. And I think a few things changed actually in quite quick succession. One of them weirdly, was President Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement. You know, understanding of climate and the issues around it were growing in boardrooms. And then President Trump said, right, we're pulling out of Paris. And all these business leaders turned around and went, well, don't do that. That gave us a level playing field. And so this removal of that level playing field in the sense of, oh, we thought we knew what the future looked like, became, oh, God, we've got to kind of grasp it ourselves. And I think one of the things that shifted with business is this better understanding that it's not an either or, like either, you know, we do something or government, but actually is a really... There's an interaction between business and policymakers. Policymakers want to hear from business. We have a, in the UK, obviously, a, a conservative government, pro-business, want to know what business thinks, doesn't want to get too far ahead of business. In, in the run-up to COP, being in the UK, we brought together as a climate group, we run something called the EV100 campaign, which is a commitment to electric vehicles and corporate fleets. We brought together a group of British businesses, BT, OpenReach, NatWest, coming together and saying to the British government, if you are ambitious on this, we will back you. That's really important for policymakers to hear. They're not going out on a limb. And, and that's when you saw the UK government announce its end date 
uh, as being 2030 because they knew that they weren't going to get pushed back on that. I think that's really shifted that sense of we're going to wait for government to tell us what to do to actually we can help frame this. And actually, if you look out to 2050, we need a very good answer to what is our business doing in a, an incredibly carbon constrained world. And that understanding has got better. Where do you see the role of investors in kind of pushing businesses and governments further in, in the current climate? I, mean, I think investors are really critical, kind of obviously, but there's still a kind of right that you've still got to grow. Like quarterly growth being the Trump card over all other things is really difficult for climate and other issues which play out over decades. And I think that's the, that's the big challenge is like there's an expectation that businesses absolutely must act on climate, but absolutely cannot in any way jeopardize their quarterly results. And you've seen some companies come out over the years and challenge that kind of, you know, Unilever quite successfully under their previous CEO and the one that we always talked about. But people might remember Indra Nui at PepsiCo trying the same thing. And she had a really far reaching plan and the investors were like, no, sorry. It's a, again, a difficult thing for businesses to do. And I think that's really held things back. And of course, COP has 2030 goals, 2050 goals, but I'd be interested in hearing what do you think might happen over this next year for the next COP? Actually, one of my team said, we need to start reflecting on what's coming for next year. And I was like, I'm just too tired from this year. Um, I think, you know, it will be quite a different conversation because the COP will be in Africa. It's going to be in Egypt. I think the attention will fully be on the financing picture and I expect loss and damages will be huge on the agenda. Well, maybe we can just finish up on a little bit longer view, since that's certainly what your organization is doing. What what makes you feel the most optimistic for just uh, the battle on climate change in general? Actually, the amount of attention it's got. So I don't think a COP has ever got this amount of attention. Bull Strikes have done an amazing job of really sort of harnessing and catalyzing that anger. But we've also seen a reaction. So businesses showing up, state and regional governments, cities, investors and others, just the sheer energy is like we've never seen before. So I think there's a lot that is happening. It's never enough. Got to go as quickly as we can. But it's it's getting more every year. And I think that that's where my optimism lies is there's a lot of energy around this now and an understanding of the problem which has been lacking previously. Thanks a lot, Helen. And I, we, we share your optimism, especially just in terms of the number of clients who are approaching us um, and approaching us about how they can work with government and other stakeholders uh, to consider this well. I think it was really interesting how we've now interrogated this question about regulation in terms of how essential it is for going forward. I think, Tarek, you definitely got a feeling that we make no progress at all until there's clear regulation. And Helen's uh, view, which is a really interesting one, especially for thinking about for our clients, is how do you look at signaling? What regulations may not be in place yet? So you're not going to get called out as the bad actor in this situation, but it is coming. And I think she's quite right that many governments are starting to have the type of signaling that if businesses are not moving forward and fast, they won't be ready um, for the situation where you know they may actually lose significant value to the assets they hold if they don't keep it up. 
What struck me is that, that Helen's response seems to be more encompassing of various avenues to get to where we need to be. And that includes, as you say, kind of policy as opposed to regulation, uh, policy to drive action. But it also includes a, a strong belief, understandably so, in, in the, the, the virtue and the, the validity of collaborations. But also, I sensed in the importance of civil society. And, and as a result of that, you're likely to see action, whether it's from consumers who will no longer purchase certain things if they don't feel they align with their with their interests or who will no longer vote for certain politicians who aren't aren't acting in the way that they believe is appropriate and that i think will be a huge lever for change as well thanks for listening to the first big conversation podcast in episode two You'll hear Freshfields partners Eric Marr and Ayman Mir in conversation with Mohammed El Erian, president of Queen's College at Cambridge University, chief economic advisor to Alliance and one of the leading thinkers on future risk.